This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. Many people have heard the phrase that your gut is like your second brain. You actually have more serotonin in your gut than you do in your brain. Well, lo and behold, we now realize that probiotics also have a very profound effect on mental health. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn all about probiotics. We'll hear how to host for vegetarian friends and family. We'll discuss staying motivated for your fall yoga practice. And lastly, we'll highlight black cookbook authors. But first, a little bit of business. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To fully benefit from probiotics, you need to ensure they're not destroyed by your stomach acids. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a variety of enteric coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. Find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. My next guest, naturopathic Dr. Philip Rochadas, graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in 2004, preceded by an honors undergraduate degree and master's of science degree, both in nutritional sciences from the University of Guelph. Philip practices in the Bolton Naturopathic Clinic in Bolton, Ontario, with his wife, Dr. Heidi Fritz. Philip's areas of clinical focus include mental health, autoimmune disease, and metabolic syndrome. He also serves as an associate professor at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, responsible for delivery of the second-year curriculum in clinical nutrition. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I am wonderful, Jamie. Thanks for having me. It's a treat to be here. Boo to COVID. We're through it. We don't want to talk about it anymore, but there are some spinoff effects that impact our health, and I'm hopeful that today's conversation will help everybody sort of move forward with their health. Are you with me? I am. So let's talk a bit about probiotics. It's a topic I love. We could spend days and days on it. They are fascinating little organisms. These are live bacteria. There's many different types of them, many species that live throughout our digestive tract. A neat little factoid, we have 10 times more bacteria living in our intestines than we have cells in our body. It's just a phenomenal concept to try to wrap our heads around. And these little guys interact very intimately with our bodies. And every day we're learning more and more about how they impact human health. Yeah, because it's more expansive than we might think. I mean, we're going to be focusing obviously on how probiotics help you digest and get the nutrients into you. But the picture is so much bigger than that. Yeah. The list of common health concerns that are positively impacted by probiotics is, again, almost insurmountable. So let's talk about them. Like, what are the health benefits of taking probiotics? The one that we all think of first, I think, is digestion. We know that for a wide array of digestive issues from the mild, meaning maybe IBS or constipation to the very severe, like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, we have multiple, multiple human studies that show probiotics really help these things. But when we really dive just a little deeper, what they're doing is they are, I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept that most of our immune system lives in our gut. And that is very true. And the part of the gut that our immune system resides in is the small intestine. So we've got quite a few of these bugs, billions of them, living in our small intestine. And they are very intimately interacting with our immune system there. And what they're doing, the the fancy word is tolerance. 
So I explain it like, well, what is seasonal allergy? Pollen and grass and ragweed are normal inhabitants of the environment. But you walk out your front door, these things are in the air, and you immunologically react to them. That means you have lost tolerance. You are immunologically reacting to something that you're not supposed to. These bugs interacting with our immune system in our small intestine help achieve and maintain tolerance. They're basically telling the immune system, hey, I'm foreign, I'm a bacteria, I'm not a human cell, yet it's okay that I'm here, calm down, don't react. And in doing that, when this is out of whack, the list of diseases that is then induced, again, is an insurmountable list. If we're not in balance, why do these illnesses come forward? Is it that our body is attacking those illnesses or is it it's susceptible to those illnesses? What's happening? It, Essentially, the bugs interacting with the immune system calm it down. They tell it that a certain level of foreign substance is kind of acceptable. Okay. When you lose that tolerance, now the immune system starts to attack itself, starts to attack its own tissues. An out-of-balance microbiome, that's what we call this population of bugs living in our intestine, the microbiome, an out-of-balance microbiome directly contributes to processes like arthritis, to inflammatory bowel disease, even to things like chronic headache. And then the list of skin ailments, eczema, psoriasis, acne. And then next, many people have heard the phrase that your gut is like your second brain. Mm -hmm. You actually have more serotonin in your gut than you do in your brain. Well, lo and behold, we now realize that probiotics also have a very profound effect on mental health. And there are now multiple studies showing that if you start taking a probiotic, mood improves. You feel less anxious. And that's the sort of gut-brain connection. So it's this panacea of impact that they have. And if I can go on for one more moment, I've made it sound like they slow immunity down. That's not accurate. They do something almost miraculous. On the one hand, they shut down subsets of immunity that would drive autoimmune disease. Yet at the exact same time, they're able to ramp up other subsets of immunity that help us fight infection. So you were hoping for a bit of a COVID link. I won't quite go there. We don't have data on COVID yet. We then have this huge slew of human studies showing that, hey, if you take a probiotic, you're less likely to get a cold or flu. And if you do get it, you recover much quicker. So on the one hand, they're shutting down autoimmunity, yet at the same time, they're ramping up our ability to go fight infections. It's really remarkable. I mean, obviously, humans have been living with this bacteria in our guts for, you know, for as long as we've been around. So if that's true, you know, can't we just get enough of these good bugs in our tummy through our diet and our normal life? Many foods can certainly help contribute to a more appropriate probiotic environment. Probiotic-containing foods include things like yogurt, sauerkraut, anything fermented. People are shocked to hear olives. Olives contain probiotics. And perhaps even more importantly is the way we eat influences what we call it prebiotics. So the food we eat becomes food for these bugs. It's clear, really clearly been shown that if you live on, a, let's say, a fast food-based diet, the standard American diet, that really causes havoc to this microbiome, these populations of bacteria. Whereas if you eat a diet very rich in vegetables and fruit that has a very important prebiotic effect, 
effect, and that really encourages this healthy balance of populations in our gut. All right, let's circle back to probiotics and those that you would take by way of supplement. If I were to go and look for them in the market, I would see something on the bottles and the boxes which refer to CFU. So what are CFU and why are they important? Again, we're talking about live bacteria. CFU stands for colony forming units. It's basically a count of how many of these bacteria are present in this particular product that you're looking at. It is a very important number. We're basically on the topic now of dose. So a really standard adult dose for a probiotic would be 10, maybe 20 billion a day. Hmm. Now, I know that number sounds astronomical, but keep it in context of in our small intestine, where most of this magic is happening, we have 10 to 100 billion bugs living there. Hmm. So if I go take 10 or 20 in a pill, I am going to have a very important, significant effect on that population of microbes. Then people say, but but there's ones out there that are 50 billion, 100 billion, 120 billion. Like, when would I want to use one of those? Mm -hmm. You got 10 to 100 billion in your small intestine. That's where most of the action is happening. That's what you want to impact. On occasion, you really want that probiotic not necessarily to impact your small intestine, but to also impact your colon. Your colon has 10 to 100 trillion. It's a crazy number. That's how many live there. So usually we're taking a probiotic to influence the small intestine, which is where 10 to 100 billion live. So if I take 10 billion or 20 billion, I'm going to have a really significant effect on the small intestine. If I want to impact the colon, I now need to start looking at much larger doses of probiotic because now this pill I'm taking, I want it to have an impact in a population that's 10 to 100 trillion. 10 billion isn't going to do that much to your colon. So when you know you have a problem in the colon, like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, also considered you want to think higher dose when we're thinking about like recovery from a prescription of antibiotics. Those are times when you might want to reserve the very high dose probiotics for. But again, just quickly, what is the dosage we should look for in the normal course if we're just looking to affect these? The typical one that we are dispensing in our practice is 10 to 20 billion. I think the one we use is actually 11 billion on the nose. But anywhere in that range, I think people will be grabbing themselves something that's going to have an important clinical outcome. So there are probiotics and then there are probiotics. What's the most effective form of probiotic? There's a few things to look at and the industry can be a tough place to navigate. I feel sorry for the consumer that walks into a health food store, stands in front of a fridge or a wall and you know, I want probiotics and you're just overwhelmed by all the different things that you see. So number one, I would say you want one that has multiple strains of probiotic. These are live bacteria. I think there's something like close to a thousand different species of bacteria living in your gut. You want to take one that has 10, 11, 15, 20 different types of bacteria in it. So multi-strain. Number two, there has been a push in recent years, the concept of shelf-stable probiotics. And I'm very much opposed to that. You want to get a probiotic that's in a fridge. There are a few species of probiotic that can survive at room temperature, but most can't, and they degrade very quickly. Uh, Bifidobacteria, a really important type of probiotic, within 30 days at room temperature, they're all dead. Hmm. So multi-strain, really important. You want one that's in a fridge. And then this is getting a little more high-tech, but you want one to be something that's called enteric-coated. 
What that means is, or let me backtrack, these are live bacteria. The pH of your stomach, your stomach is so acidic. Like the little joke I make is if you put your hand in your stomach, you wouldn't have a hand left when you take it out. Mm-hmm. The acidic environment of your stomach is really, really just, it's very aggressive. Well, these are live bacteria and they don't survive that. They do horribly in stomach acid environment. They can't survive that magnitude of acid. So the concept of enterocoding is the capsule that you're taking has a coating on it that won't let it open in your stomach. And then it's engineered in a way, this is sort of food science industry, they do this for mouthfeel of foods and whatnot. But in this situation, the enterocoding will not open in the presence of stomach acid. But as soon as the food bolus enters the small intestine, as soon as it does, your body has mechanisms that it really aggressively neutralizes the stomach acid. It doesn't want that very acidic food bolus burning your whole intestine. So as soon as it enters the upper small intestine, the pH is made neutral. That change from very acidic pH to neutral triggers this enterocoding to now open and release the probiotics into your small intestine alive. The science is very clear on this. You take two identical probiotics, one enterocoded, one not. The enterocoded one delivers greater than five times more live bacteria to your intestine. So I would say those are three really key things to mind when looking for a probiotic. Enterocoded, refrigerated, and multi-strain. All right. You mentioned the number of bacteria as a dosage uh, nexus, but you also said that there's deterioration from the time that I suppose it's manufactured or bottled or however which way you want to describe it. When we look at those numbers, are those numbers reflective of what we're actually getting or or is that more reflective of what was originally put in the bottles, if you catch my drift? It's a great question. And really, unfortunately, that changes from brand to brand. So, you know, I would find yourself a health food store that you trust. Go talk to the people there. Do you know which of these brands are labeling their amount time of manufacture? Because there can certainly be degradation. It'd be a lot less degradation if it's being stored in the fridge. It'd be a lot greater degradation based on how it's transported and how it's stored. Or are they testing the colony-forming units, how many bacteria there are, at time of expiry? And you'll find some companies in the industry are checking it at time of manufacture, whereas some companies in the industry are guaranteeing that at time of expiry, assuming you kept it in the fridge, it will have the number of bacteria that are claimed on the label. So let's talk about somebody who's taking probiotics. This is prescriptive, right? When you're recommending it, you're saying everybody should be doing it and we should be doing it every day. This is one of the very few supplements. I have a really short list that I feel you can argue all people should take. This is definitely on the list from a very young age. Most supplements for kids will say on the label ages five and up. Probiotics will say on the label ages one and up. And the reason Health Canada allowed them to say age one and up is if you actually look at the human data that are giving it to young infants, they actually give it on the first day of life. Wow. This relates really importantly to concepts like you see differences in children and the presence of autoimmune disease based on whether they were born by C-section or born vaginally. So we're talking about trillions of these bugs in the intestine, but a fetus intestine is sterile. There's zero bugs. By day three or four of life, they have populations of bugs similar to adults. So the first inoculation, what is the first bugs that the intestine comes in contact with are what set up and make a home. 
when the baby's born vaginally, the actual microbiome population of the vaginal environment changes in the weeks before delivery so that mom now has species of bugs ideal to inoculate a newborn. If the child is born C-section, the first inoculation is the air, and it's the skin of the people in the room, radically different from what is ideal for the newborn. So then you see C-section-born children, much higher rates of eczema, much higher rates of asthma. So human studies set out and say, okay, day one of life, we're going to administer probiotics and see what happens. And you get very large reductions in the likelihood of the newborn getting eczema or asthma. So sweeping applications, really something everyone should take. Safety completely unquestioned. We talked about 10 billion, high dose being 50 billion or 100 billion. There are human studies that have given as high as 3,600 billion, Hmm. 3.6 trillion, extremely safe, etc. And then why do we need to take them long term? Which is a question, should I take them for a month or two then stop? But the answer is no. None of these bugs are permanent colonizers. They do colonize in your intestines, but not permanently. So if you take this, take this, take this, and then stop one day, three months after you stop, none of the species that you took are still in your intestines. They leave. So the ongoing taking of it maintains these populations. The only way a probiotic can be a permanent colonizer is if you were exposed to it in your first week of life. So you took a probiotic from day one of life. You're now 40 years old. Some radical event occurs, IV antibiotics, you know, you radically decimate your population of probiotics in your gut. If you know exactly which probiotic you took as a newborn and you take it again, those will be permanent colonizers. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Next month, you're going to be back and we're going to discuss prostate health. Yes? Thanks for having me, Jamie. Looking forward to it. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss hosting vegetarians on The Tonic. Parkinson Canada provides services and education to people with Parkinson's, their families, and the healthcare professionals who treat them. Since 1965, the organization advocates on issues that concern the Parkinson's community in Canada. The Parkinson Canada National Research Program funds innovative research for better treatments and a cure. A national registered charity, Parkinson Canada fulfills its mission through the generosity of donors and is an accredited organization under the Imagine Canada Standards Program since 2013. For more information, visit parkinson.ca. Talking dirty. Brought to you by Ultramedic Adjustable Lifestyle Beds. Ultramatic's new antimicrobial mattress is the only mattress in Canada with two levels of protection against viruses and germs. Practice safe sleep. This has been me talking dirty. 60% off the antimicrobial mattress. Offer ends Monday. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Then try it in Ontario's safest mattress store at Lawrence and Bathurst. Ultramatic, elevate your sleep. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Carolyn Tanner-Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for over 17 years, and she has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. 
Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Thanks so much, Jamie. I'm doing very well. Thank you. So last month we were discussing, you know, what to do if you are visiting somebody's cottage or house and what the etiquette is and what you could bring. And you had lots of great ideas. We're going to do a reversey and flip it. And this time we are going to be hosts. Yeah. But this time we are hosts and we know that some of our guests are either vegetarian or even vegan or have special diets. And that poses some challenges for people when they're sort of meal planning, right? does, especially if you're a carnivore thinker. In other words, you plan your meal around your main course, which is animal protein. And most people do that. Exactly. It's much easier to build a menu when you start with the protein. There's no question. Yes, it is. But instead of thinking, you know, I'm going to put three things on the plate, think of four things on the plate. Like in terms of spacing out the plate, having something green, having a grain or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So normally you think, okay, what's my protein? Then I need some sort of a vegetable. Put in the salad or if you're doing a first course aside, of course. What sort of a vegetable? Maybe a start. Now I want you to think of a fourth thing that may have a vegetable protein or a non-animal protein, a plant-based protein in it. So this way, it's a wonderful side dish, but it could also double as a vegetarian main course. So you're of the school, if you have a vegetarian guest, you're creating a separate dish for them rather than like a separate protein as opposed to sort of trying to duplicate the protein. Exactly. But also that plant-based protein can serve as a side dish for other people as well. Got it. So let's say you're having six people for dinner. Right. And you're going to make enough of that fourth dish for six people. Really make enough for seven or eight people so that that vegetarian person can double up on it, but everybody else can try it as well. Mm-hmm. And the animal protein, you cut it back a little bit, knowing that you have a vegetarian or vegan at your table. Right. My favorite vegetable, even though it's a vegetable that I don't really like, and I know that sounds really weird, is using eggplant. Eggplant is a wonderful dish that really acts as a muse for a lot of things to put on top of it. Okay, Now, don't think of eggplant as a baba ganoush when you mash it up with something or oil or tahini or whatever you do inside your baba ganoush. Think of it as the canvas for your vegetarian main course. So you're looking at the eggplant for its texture value as a whole, as opposed to mashing it up, right? Because it, exactly. it sort of has like a meaty chewiness, like some bigger mushrooms that right. people tend to use it as a vegetarian supplement. Yeah, but the reality is, is most people do not like a portobello mushroom. I can't stand them. I want to eat them. I hate them. I don't want to say hate on this show. No, you can say I it. I hate them. Okay, like a portobello mushroom burger. What is that? It's not a burger. I get it. You're not eating meat, but it, don't give me a mushroom cap. So I don't like pretending that you're having a burger. You're don't not. make the burger for that person. Look, at there's tons of vegetarian patties out there that do approximate me better. But even mm. if I'm shutting my eyes, that mushroom is not a hamburger. So. That mushroom is not a hamburger. No. So how are you cooking the eggplant? Because I've been having some hits and misses with eggplant. First of all, I like the little ones. The regular globe eggplants, but the little ones. Yeah, right? but those are the ones that are giving me trouble. And the reason is the flesh inside is cooking at one rate and the skin, and there's more of it when you have a smaller eggplant, is cooking at a different rate and it's still a little chewy. So are you cooking them whole or are you cooking them sliced? Sliced. So what I like to do is cook them whole. So I fire up my grill and if you don't have a grill, you could do this under your broiler. Think of your broiler as an upside down barbecue. So you poke a few holes with a little sharp knife or a fork or a cake tester because otherwise the eggplants explode. Mm -hmm. And you put them on your grill at like medium high heat and you grill each side 
an eggplant has four sides. Okay, so you grill each side for about five to seven minutes, depending on how big the eggplant is. Right, but you're talking about the smaller ones now, right? The ones that yes. kind of fit in the palm in your hand, right? Yes. So let's say you can't find the small ones or they're medium size, anywhere from three to seven minutes per side, let's say, if they're okay. really little. Okay, three minutes. And they still have four sides, even the small ones. Mm-hmm. And you grill them much, much longer than you think. Yep. Okay, so mm-hmm. they need to be really charred on the outside. And by charred, I don't mean black. I just mean mush, like soft. They collapse. They're super soft. You pull them off the grill, let them cool until you could touch them or put a glove on. Slice them in half, but do not slice right through the stem at the top, only because they're pretty. Open it up like kind of like you're butterflying it or you're making sort of like an open flower. Mm-hmm. And then sort of with a knife, make like a hatch mark on the flesh yep. of the eggplant. This is my favorite thing to do. And then I sprinkle with a little bit of salt, mm-hmm. a very small amount of pepper, a good drizzle of a fruity olive oil. And then I like to make, I do this before I start growing the eggplant, but I like to make a mixture, a lentil mixture. Mm-hmm. So I boil up lentils, or you could use a can of lentils. The cans of lentils are perfectly acceptable. And you mix into the lentils some herbs, whatever you've got, if you have a little herb bar in your garden or just parsley or whatever it might be, herbs, a little bit of mince, garlic, olive oil, lemon juice, salt, and pepper. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. You could throw another grain in there if you like, like a little bit of quinoa and lentils or couscous with the lentils, bulgur, barley, anything you want, okay? Then you take that lentil salad and you spoon it on top of your cooked flesh that you've seasoned with olive oil and salt. Mm-hmm. You spoon it on top of, like making little boats, of the eggplant flesh. And it's beautiful to look at. You could platter them or you could serve them on individual plates. You could even do this as a first course if you wanted to. Or if you're really fancy, Jamie, and you're serving this plate, it's for your vegetarian friend or your vegan friend. You serve them the eggplant butterflied eggplant with a lentil salad mix instead of the steak or chicken. Okay. What's next? So let's say you are making steaks for your other guests. Have you ever made a cauliflower steak? Yes. So this is not actually a steak and you're not going to take the place of steak, but it's nice to look at. So what I like to do is I take the cauliflower, slice it through the stem so it doesn't fall apart Mm -hmm. and you'll get about three steaks per cauliflower. Okay. And some extras. Yeah. Yeah. And some extra little bits. I would not even cook the extra little bit, save them for tomorrow and roast them up for your dinner. So I would just oil them up a little bit, put them on your barbecue on medium-low heat and slowly grill them until they're completely cooked through and you have beautiful char marks on them. And then you could either drizzle that same lentil salad over them. And then for my non-vegan vegetarian friends, I like to put some buffalo mozzarella through that as well, or even bocconcini or bocconcini balls. So you have the cauliflower steak, a few pieces of cheese, or even feta. See, I would go Mediterranean and maybe put some labna. Or oh, labna would be gorgeous. I would some do tahini. sesame. Yeah, tahini would be a good one too. Pomegranate seeds. Yeah. A little bit of greens, spicy pepper. There you go. Delicious. But I would definitely do some sort of dairy if, if the person's a vegetarian yep. and not vegan. Yep. And it'll round up. But don't forget, really, use those lentils. They're a full protein, and they're easy to use right out of the can, or you could boil up your own, and you have a complete meal for your vegetarians. Okay. The other nice thing to do is, have you ever cooked halloumi? I have a love-hate relationship with halloumi. I I like the idea of halloumi, a firm cheese that you can grill. From a flavor perspective, there's really not much going on there. And if the halloumi you get, it can have a shelf life of, I don't know, 100 years. And if you get the wrong halloumi, eh, even the texture is a bit off. So you really have to get very fresh halloumi if you're going to do it. Okay. So 
you got to know your halloumi. Yeah. I have not had an issue with halloumi. Sometimes I find different halloumis are saltier than others. Agreed. So what you could do is just soak it for an hour or so and get rid of some of that salt. And then what I like to do with them, I do this in the winter, I pan fry them in a cast iron. Yep. But you could grill them as well. I, I do find pan frying them a little bit easier. Sure. I find the grill harder. They, it melts a little bit on the grill. But what you do is you take your halloumi, you slice it into slabs, you oil them up, pan fry it. But in the meantime, you have a grilled pepper mixture ready to roll. So you've grilled peppers and you could drizzle a little bit of olive oil on your grilled peppers. You could toss your peppers with some cherry tomato halves or sun-dried tomatoes, Mm -hmm. maybe some capers and olives, and dress your halloumi with that beautiful pepper, tomato, caper, olive mixture. And it's a beautiful protein for your vegetarians who are non-vegan. Yeah. My first job ever was at a cheese shop. And there are maybe like 40 cheeses I would put ahead of halloumi. Like if I had to choose one. Oh, really? It's just not my thing. I don't know. You could do the same thing with feta. Or saganaki if you could find it. Or saganaki for sure. But feta, what I like to do sometimes too, is you take a piece of feta, a chunk, like a good flat piece, and you put it in a piece of tin foil drizzled with olive oil. Yep. You could put your pre-roasted peppers and some cherry tomatoes, olive oil, capers, all in that little package. Wrap up your package. You could put that right onto your barbecue. Yeah, Yeah. if I'm doing that, if cheese is the focus, you want to have a nice grilled pita bread with or even some sort of bread or like sourdough even so that you can eat it together. I think the bread and cheese experience is probably enough. That would be really good. That's just my my two cents. The other thing that I've been making, two ingredient zucchini fritters. I actually saw this in like some magazine or something, but I've been doing it a lot. And what it is, is I take grated zucchini and I salt it. Just sprinkle some salt over it, toss up the salt within your zucchini, and then you let it sit for about 10 or 15 minutes. Then squeeze out your zucchini, like literally with your hands. Then you're going to take your zucchini and wrap it in a kitchen towel and wring it out. Because it's very, very watery. You're going to mix it with some chickpea flour, okay? So chickpea flour will absorb all of that water. And then you're going to add back a tiny bit of just regular tap water. So my go-to is two cups of zucchini, grated zucchini, before it's been ringed out, okay? Two cups for a half a cup of chickpea flour. And you mix that together. Believe it or not, it holds together beautifully. So it's vegan because there's no eggs, there's no cheese, there's nothing in there. And you pan fry them, make them into little pancakes or fritters, a decent thickness, about half an inch thick, and pan fry them until they're nice and golden brown on each side and serve them up with some yogurt, a Greek yogurt or labneh or nothing. You could even serve them with some tomato puree and they're really good. Fantastic. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're going to hear back from you next month. Yeah, for sure. Can't wait. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free and great tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. 
Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Our next guest, Jelena De Silva, is a well-certified, passionate yoga teacher. Her love for yoga takes her across the GTA to teach at several studios and multiple clients. Her background in psychology and college athletics infuses her classes with a strong understanding of how mind and body function. Whether leading a large outdoor event, a classroom of yogis, or in the home of a client, her philosophy for teaching is simple. Teach with love, empathy, patience, and humility. Yoga is a journey, not a destination. And if you want to reach out to her, you can do so at jelenayoga.com. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. How are you? It has. I am doing well, all things considered. We can put a little asterisk beside everybody's answer. It's all contextual. We're all doing fine in the moment. So today we're going to talk about motivating yourself for your fall yoga practice. But, you know, I was thinking this probably pertains to any sort of practice, whether, you know, it's home workouts or spinning or rowing or whatever it is you're doing. Keeping that motivation is important. Yeah. Yes. It is very much so. So how can we better understand how to motivate ourselves and how we operate? Well, I think it starts with understanding ourselves and our personal patterns. So just working with your own natural rhythm. Like if you're a morning person, take advantage of that. If you're not a morning person, don't force it and go with the times of day that work well for you, that you feel the most energy and also being extra patient with yourself as you become aware of your patterns and then taking into context the fact that we are going through a pandemic. So that usually means how we are, everything we're experiencing is amplified a little bit and allowing for more more graciousness when you're interacting with that and the emotional ebbs and flows that come with that and i found that writing things down is helpful when you are discovering your personal patterns so even if you're just like journaling a little bit every day become aware of when you have the most energy become aware of your emotional patterns and then organize your workouts around that i think if there's one silver lining to covid is that with more people home and perhaps not working regular hours in the office there's more flexibility to work in other important aspects of your life whether it's fixing your own meals or shopping or spending time with your family but in particular exercise like there's really less excuse now right like if you like to work out in the mornings well you know what you can work around your schedule and do some yoga in the morning I actually, like, I'm a weird duck. I like exercising right before dinner, which everybody else loathes. <laughs> but, like, you know, that's my time. That's when I want to exercise, and then I have a nice dinner, and I feel good about myself. But everybody's yeah. different. Yeah, right? Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. Especially if you're doing yoga, you want to do it with a relatively empty stomach. Yep. Because you don't want to be folding forward and have, like, you know, a roast dinner in your belly. I'm trying to counter the effects of, you know, it's the late afternoon malaise that everybody gets. And yeah. I, I figure if I am active at that point of the day, it's two birds, one stone, you know, like I'm battling that and I'm getting my exercise in. Yep. Yeah. You become your own natural cup of coffee. So what are ways that you see you and your clients motivating yourselves without beating ourselves up? What's a good way to do that? Well, I think it's a real balancing act. When I talk with my clients, they have a lot of goals that they set for themselves. And I think that's important. Definitely have a structure, definitely have an idea of where you want to go, but don't let that completely control you and allow for setbacks along the way. 
like I was saying earlier, with the pandemic happening and ebbs and flows and a lot of unexpected things going on, you need to allow for a little bit more of those setbacks, more patience and grace when we do encounter them. So set the goals, but don't let them rule you. And if you need to adjust those goals as you move along, let that be the case as well. Sometimes we get so fixated on this end result, we forget that, you know, the fact that I'm doing it, the fact that I'm still moving, I'm still, you know, trying to make myself feel better is enough some days. Ironically, I would tell people that really the goal, your first goal and primary goal would be just to do it would be to get on that journey yeah. of, you know, having a regular practice, whether it's yoga or whatever else it is you're doing. If you define that as your goal, then you don't have to worry about whether or not, you know, you've lost five pounds or, you know, you've hit the mat five times in one week. It doesn't really matter. And recognize that it's nonlinear, right? Like you're going to have bad weeks and good weeks and move forward or, you know, maybe a pose will work once, but then you can't hit it the next week. It doesn't matter. Just getting out to do it is enough. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the best advice I got was back in university. At the very start of university, one of my father's friends said to me, 80% of university is just showing up. And <laughs> it's the same for law school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. <laughs> no, that's not true. Don't tell people that if you're no, practicing law. No, that's not um, true. Um, <laughs> but that whole idea applies to working out as well. Just show up, even if you feel awful. Yep. Just show up on the mat, do it anyways, and 9.9 .9 times out of 10, you will feel better at the end of it. Yeah, but some of us are starting at a point now, like maybe, I'm just saying maybe they let everything go to hell, you know, since February and March. And, you know, physically they're in a different place. Maybe they're out of practice. Maybe they put on a few. What are your thoughts on that? Working from a place of acceptance for that change, I think, is really important because so many people have experienced that. You know, their bodies have shifted and changed, and now they're trying to find a way to get back on track or just to feel better. And a key concept I've come across is the idea of body neutrality, where you just look at your body and say, hey, it's functioning, it's working, this is a useful arm, this is a useful leg, I can do things, which is a little bit more approachable than body positivity, which is that whole movement, which is wonderful. Love your body, love yourself, live your life and all that. But sometimes we can't muster the energy to do that. We start from a place of soft acceptance yeah. and move from there. It's a little bit easier. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I would define it differently. The body positivity is an acceptance of any sort of body shape, right? Like that's what it means sort of in the social media vernacular, right? Like, oh, it's okay if I'm obese, it's who I am, it's this or that. And I actually don't buy into that. I, you know, like I think there's a point where if we're not active, if we're not healthy, there are serious health implications. So yes, it's good to have self-esteem and it's good to feel good about yourself, but it's not good to be delusional. And, you know, there comes a point where you kind of have to take ownership of, you know, what you have going on and just do the best you can. Not everybody's going to be a model. Not everybody's going to have washboard abs. Everybody's body shape is different. And I have great sympathy for those people who are trying to lose weight because I know how hard it is mm -hmm. uh, and I know how hard it is to keep active. But I think it's OK to say, hey, I want to do better. And yet at the same time, I think the concept of body neutrality is to accept, you know, that you're in a range, that not everybody's the same and you can still accept who you are if you're making that effort. That's how I understand it. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it because it really is such a fine line and yeah. it can ignite a lot of argument. But I do think that being honest with yourself is important. And if you do recognize that you need to make changes, working from a place of self-acceptance rather than self-flagellation will actually lead to long-term Right. You don't exercise to beat yourself up. No. And you're not healthy because you're trying to punish yourself. If that's the way you feel about it, you know, you're, you're just making life very hard for yourself. But I do think uh, if you're not the 
type that is driven by goals, I think you still have to find that spark. And and if body neutrality yeah. is the way to go, then then I'm all for that. Well said. What motivates you internally? It might not be the way your body looks, but how it feels or just wanting to be healthier. Like everyone has different goals. What will spark you to reach that goal? Absolutely. And what would motivate me wouldn't necessarily work for somebody else. And I don't really want my listeners to think that there's only one way to health because there's many different ways. So listeners out there, do what works for you. But the key word in that sentence is works, right? Like if it's not working, then it's pointless. There are some days where you just don't want to work out. And I know how I motivate myself. How do you motivate yourself when you just don't want to get on the mat? For myself personally, when I don't want to do it, sometimes I just like allow for a little bit of a pity party, you know, where you <laughs> yeah. just like roll around and go, I don't want to just like flail your arms and legs and then get that out of your system and you're like, okay, are you done now? And then show up to whatever I need to do. I do actually find that's helpful to have a little bit of a pity party. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's funny. I wouldn't have thought that's the way you'd go. But anyways, all right. Yeah. You know, like the inner child, got to let it out. And sometimes it's a brat. So... <laughs> But another thing that I found helpful is dedicating your movement practice to someone or something outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. Earlier this year, when we were experiencing, and we are still experiencing a lot of that social justice upheaval, connecting the mind and the heart and the body to cause outside of you and imagine the energy moving in that direction, or a person who's been resting on your heart or your mind. Like for me, it's my nephew will pop up into my brain and I'll send him love. I'll send him energy. And it reminds me that, you know, I want to stay healthy for the other people in my life as well. Mm-hmm. Because you do want to work from a place of self-love, but some days that's not always realistic. And so when you think about the love that you carry for other people, that can be intrinsically motivating to move forward, to do what you need to do. So dedicating the practice to someone or something that, that means something to you can be really helpful. Yeah. And just remembering that you're 30 to 60 minutes away from a better mood. My motivation is I try and envision the way I'll feel if I didn't do what I was going to do, whether it's rowing yeah. or weights or yoga. Or, and then I imagine how happy I'm going to be after I do it, because I really do feel better after I exercise. And sometimes if I can put myself into that mindset, I'll just think what kind of release you're going to get after doing the work, that sometimes is enough to get me going. Very, very true. Yeah. And just be patient with yourself, too, because I've been working out since I was 13, 14 years old. And almost every single time I go through that moment of, I don't want to do this. Yeah, exactly. And then you push past it, like what you were saying, you know, you remind yourself, oh, I feel so good. Exactly. What do you think about, for those who are saying, oh, but I don't have the time and I don't have the space. Is that that a good enough excuse not to move forward? Make the time and the space and start small. I find that there's a lot of preconceived notions of what a workout should look like, how much time should be devoted to it. Let that go. I've loved watching people adapt their practices these past few months because they were dealing with crazy circumstances. You know, they're working from home. They've got their kids. I can't tell you how many times like a dog or a cat has like gone right up to the screen or, you know, jumped on them while they're practicing and they just do it anyway, which has actually increased people's patience and adaptability, which I think is also good. But if you only have time for five minutes, that's fine. Ten minutes, fine. 20, great. It doesn't have to be a full hour of work, even if it's just a little bit. It's more about the consistency and the quality, not so much the quantity of what you're doing. So maybe it's 20 minutes one day, maybe it's 60 minutes the next, maybe it's five minutes, but just do something and let that be enough. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll highlight Black cookbook authors on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. 
They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for 12 centuries. No, actually, it's only been five or six years. Since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're talking about a couple of excellent new cookbooks, one called Vegetable Kingdom and the other New World Sourdough. Okay, those seem like two very different types of cookbooks. Why are we talking about those two? I am making an effort to promote black cookbook authors. Now, I've been thinking, as we all have, I think, as part of the ongoing discussions that have been going on about recent events, specifically recognizing and combating racism in various forms and what we can all do. And I need to be a real ally, not a performative ally. It's important that we do more than just say, oh, that's terrible what happened in the States or here or in different places, but we need to take positive steps in different ways and recognize that individuals have a responsibility to do what they can. So in my case, I mean, I talk about cookbooks and recipes, but when I think about it, I thought, well, how do I choose the books? And which books do I choose? I mean, I choose the ones that sound good to me, but how do I know about them? You know, how do I find them? So how do you find them? I find them online. Other people write about them. People promote them. I go into stores and look about them. But I have to cast a broad net and be open. So while I still want to only talk about cookbooks that I like, that are interesting, and that I can recommend, and, you know, that are different, might be interesting to the listeners, I need to think and make conscious choices about which cookbooks I choose. Do you think there is a barrier there that is preventing Blacks and minorities from getting published as cookbook authors? like everything else. Everybody needs a chance. You know, you need a publicist. You need a voice. You need an Instagram account that people actually follow. You just need a chance for somebody to see you or for people to see you and say, wow, you know, that's a really great book or that person's really interesting to listen to because there's so many out there. I mean, if you've been to Indigo and you, you know, or look on Amazon and look for the cookbooks, it's just, it's huge. There's so many. There's so many out there. How do you know? Exactly. And, you know, some of them are self-publishing. Others are being promoted because they're already on media, whether it's, you know, a YouTube channel or whether they're on the Food Network. It isn't necessarily, you know, maybe they own restaurants. There's all sorts of different roads to getting published as a cookbook author, but it doesn't necessarily speak to the quality of the cookbook, right? Absolutely, and I like certain cuisines, and so I tend to talk about some things more than others, and I like to bake, so I talk about baking cookbooks, but I like a lot of different things, and you know, I'm open to trying new things that otherwise would be boring if I talked about Italian and Middle Eastern and baking cookbooks all the time. So it's good for me, it's good for you, it's good for the cookbook authors, 
to just think broadly. Okay, so which one do you want to start with? Let's talk about Vegetable Kingdom. Okay. The author's name is Brian Terry. This is a vegan book, and it's just generally inspired by you know, the flavors of the African diaspora. He's written previous cookbooks, and in this and his previous cookbooks, he also has a playlist and you know music to go with each recipe, which is kind of fun. Is it music that you're to cook to, or is it music to eat to? To Do eat you... to, I think, although it could be to cook to. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it was a great book. It was organized by vegetable, you know, so each section. It wasn't like appetizer, main, dessert. It's just organized by you know, brassicas or tomatoes or whatever. And then in each section, you have, you know, easier recipes that get more complicated or, you know, can be combined to be main courses. And previously, when I wrote about a vegan cookbook, I sort of snuck in some butter and cheese here and there. But with this one, I really tried to just keep it vegan because we eat plant-based sometimes anyways, even though we're not vegan. So let's just sort of keep with the integrity of the recipe. And they were excellent. I really like them. I agree. So let's talk about what we made. One thing that we made was the take on red beans and rice, which is a traditional Caribbean dish. But this was made with farro instead of rice. And if you're not familiar, farro is an ancient grain made with spelt. It's just more chewy. And I I really like it. Yeah, I like farro too. And kidney beans. The actual title is farro and kidney beans with burnt scallions. And there's coconut milk that you cook the farro in and you cook the beans separately. And then there's this garlic and scallion saute, which you mix inside. It was super flavorful. You know, it kind of reminds, in a weird way, We when we went to Paris last year, you ordered this, it was a farro dish and it was like riffing on mac and cheese, but with the coconut milk in with the beans and the farro, it almost had sort of like a dairy, like mac and cheese type feel to it, even though there was no cheese in it. It did. I was surprised. It was really good and very filling too. Yep. Yeah. And we also tried oven roasted zucchini with Now, the recipe is collard peanut pesto. Collard greens are hard to find here, although you can. So we used kale in the pesto instead. And I thought that was interesting because I'd never made a pesto with peanuts before or really with kale. It was really good. Like the pesto in and of itself was good. The oven roasted zucchini is good, but you could do other vegetables too. Yeah, the zucchini was kind of a blank canvas. And I have to say the pesto really was the showstopper there. And I could see it on all sorts of other roasted vegetables like carrots even or something like that would be good. Yeah, and I mean, we had it with chicken, yeah. so, but, and you use the pesto going not, forward. We're not so supposed we, to do that. <laughs> well, we could have had it by itself. I didn't change yes. the recipe. No, it was a perfectly good side dish, and it was vegan, and we made it vegan, so there you go. Exactly. <laughs> and we also made panko-crusted cauliflower and coconut curry, which was an entire dish, and it was entirely vegan. Yep. It was interesting because you roasted the cauliflower and put a panko breadcrumb mixture. The recipe called for parsley, which is not my favorite. So we made arugula and breadcrumbs. Which I have to say was my idea. It was, and it was a good one. So you bread that on top of the cauliflower and roast it separately from the curry. And it was great. You know, we served it on rice. That was a really good dish. One interesting thing, and I found this in a previous cookbook that I'd written about, which was a similar subject, is that I would have expected it to be spicy, you know, big spicy flavors. And it wasn't. I added quite a bit of spice, cayenne and stuff, because I like things spicy. But if anybody's listening and they're worried about the flavors being too strong or too spicy, we don't need to worry about it because it's actually not like that. Mm -hmm. The spice level is reasonable. Are there other recipes in the book that you didn't get to that you think might be interesting? Yeah, there's a chickpea 
chickpea fennel and potato stew that mm. I would for sure make because I love chickpeas. Well, all those ingredients. Yep. There's roasted sweet potatoes with a pecan meal and a spicy tamarind sauce. We've been eating lots of roasted sweet potatoes because they're so good. And this, I like tamarind, that sweet sour sauce, and I think that sounds great. So barbecued carrots with slow-cooked white beans. And then there's big beans, buns, and broccoli rob. Broccoli rob's not my favorite, so I'd use broccolini or something, but it's like a sandwich in a bun with stewed beans, and that looked really good to me, too. All right, so the other book is a completely different direction. What's that one about? New World Sourdough. That's by a man named Brian Ford. You may have seen him if you watch the Food Network, because I saw him as a judge on the Food Network, but he runs a blog called artisanbrian.com, and this is his first book. I thought this was super interesting because I have some bread baking books, and I've talked about baking sourdough on the show before. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, what I think of as sourdough is similar, you know, a round or rectangular rustic loaf that's, you know, it may have some cheese or some herbs in it, but, you know, it's pretty plain. But he points out in this book that that's not, you know, that's just one kind of sourdough, and that all over the world they use sourdough starter to bake bread and other dishes because commercial yeast isn't necessarily available. And so this particular book focuses on the breads of Latin America. So he's got the basic rustic sourdough recipes, but he also has a number of other recipes, which I haven't found. Like, I thought, surely there must be other ways to make sourdough. What if you add this or you add that? And I couldn't really find recipes. So I found them here. It was good. So would you say because it's different types of sourdough that you need to be a proficient baker of sourdough first before you try them? Or is it accessible to somebody who maybe hasn't baked sourdough before? Accessible. It's the same technique. They just these additional breads like a chocolate pan de cocoa, which is made with coconut milk, bananas foster sourdough, you know, brioche, challah, pretzel yep. buns. Once you understand how to deal with a starter, then it's just a bread with additional mix-ins. So it's fine. I mean, I found that because I have some other books which are a little bit more precise about the temperatures of things, that was helpful as background for me. But it's very accessible. And, you know, I think generally follow the directions and play around a little bit and look on his blog, it would be fine. And what did you make from that particular cookbook? I made one of the rustic sourdoughs because I just wanted to see how it compared. A whole wheat sourdough is great. Great texture, great crumb, was not too heavy, even though it was almost all whole wheat. So it definitely would compare. I also made something called Coco Rug Broad. I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that right, which is his take on Panda Coco, a classic Honduran breakfast bread, which is pretty dense bread with whole wheat flour, coconut milk, coconut quinoa. That was less successful, I have to say, but I think it was me. Like, it just didn't rise properly. And you know what? That's going to happen sometimes. Yeah. But it had great flavor, so I'm going to try that again. Well, it's an interesting cookbook, and our friends who published it actually gave us an extra copy. So I'm going to say this to the listeners. If you are interested in getting a copy of New World Sourdough by Brian Ford, send me an email and I'll announce the email at the end of the show, but we'll do it again right now. Jamie at tonictoronto.com telling us what you love about the show and we'll draw from a hat and uh, you can pick up the cookbook at the station. That's good. I think it's hard to get too. Like they sold out their first printing. Yep. So this is a a real bonus for our listeners. Next month, what are we going to talk about? 
So there was another one of these black cookbook authors that I wanted to highlight, and we just didn't have time today, called The New Way to Cake by Benjamina Abwehi. And I'm going to talk about that next month because it sounds awesome. I love the recipes. And then there's another one called Jubilee by Tony Tipton Martin, which is focused on African cooking that you might want to check out. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Philip Orshadis, N.D., Carolyn Tanner-Cohen, Jelena De Silva, and Naomi Bussin. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health benefits of ginseng, more sports injury triage, and dealing with uncertainty. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.